Good evening, everyone. My name's Mel, if we haven't met. And yes, this is my first time up here. And I have to admit to you that the median age of my normal audience is about eight years old. And so this is a slightly different gig tonight. Um, but I'm excited because we are continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we've seen Jesus explain to us what it means to live this kingdom life in the here and now of a fallen world. And we've seen that that kingdom life, as we live the life that Jesus calls us to, means that we are living inside the life of the design that we were meant to, participating in the very mind of the maker. And today, we turn to the latter chapter latter part of chapter 5, where we get the final of these juxtapositions that Jesus has been working through. You've heard it said, he starts, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And Jesus has been stepping us through not what it looks like to live by the law, but what that fulfillment of the law actually looks like in him. And so we arrive at our passage that I think is one of the most culturally subversive, but also one of the most difficult instructions within the Sermon on the Mount for both the disciples and the broader Jewish audience listening to Jesus, but also for us as his modern hearers. It contains some of the most recognisable idioms that we find from the Bible. Turn the other cheek, love your enemy, go the extra mile. They're almost cliched, you could say, and yet they have had a global impact, these words. But I want to say tonight that perhaps the more important impact of these words is the personal one. These passages speak straight into the human condition and they speak straight into our hearts. And they are so needed for every person who's ever been hurt by anyone, but also any person who's ever hurt anyone else. Pretty much, I think, any person who's had any sort of human interaction. And so given that you're here tonight, I'm going to say it's you. And so we begin. We start with the concept of revenge. You've heard it said, Jesus says, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, Jesus is referring to the law that we heard Tim read from Exodus 21. And if you know anything about the culture of the Old Testament, you'll know that it was couched in an escalating, uncontrolled kind of violence that is quite foreign to us. You hurt my sister, I'll kill your brother. You killed my brother, so I'll kill your family. And on and on and on went this escalation of revenge. And it can feel foreign to us, but the closest we get, I think, is a show like Revenge or a film like Taken, where we get a fictional glimpse into this world. But that is genuinely where the Israelites found themselves in worlds like these. He gives us his law. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. God's law speaks into the Israelites' lives where revenge and violence was the norm and demands something entirely different from them. Because their God has mercy and grace at his very core. And so his instructions to his people in both the law and in the Sermon on the Mount have graciousness and mercy at the very core of them. 
they're woven into the very fabric of what a good life looks like. Yes, the law enables justice, absolutely. Even in the case of one of the most vulnerable people that we can think of, a pregnant woman being injured, you will have justice. But the law says that justice will never be at your own hands. It will never result in more hate. Because God's law, like him, doesn't allow for our personal need for revenge to overtake his want for justice and mercy, side by side, hand in hand. And Jesus, as he pulls apart this law, takes it and then amplifies it to a whole other level, doesn't he? Verse 39, have a look down with me. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Four examples are given to us of situations that we might find ourselves in, even in 2017. Someone seeking to do you injury, someone persecuting you in the law, someone commanding your services and someone begging you for money. And Jesus says, don't rely on what you think your rights are here in this situation. Don't rely on what you think is fair here. Do what they demand. And you know what? Do more than they demand. And you know what? Do double what they demand. The law demanded something radically different of the Israelites, and Jesus demands something radically different of us. Because our world says, we're a pretty good person if we just manage to ignore our enemies, doesn't it? That at best, to pretend a person doesn't exist on the face of the planet is a pretty good response to someone hating you. Yeah? But at worst, to retaliate in some way isn't the worst thing in the world because they've wronged you. They've done something wrong. They deserve to be punished. But the Christian... Jesus is saying, is to follow in Jesus' footsteps in never choosing revenge, not even to just be passive and to ignore. The Christian is called to pursue people for the opposite of revenge, the very opposite, and that is love. Verse 43, Jesus continues to amplify the call away from revenge as he pivots to talk about the who, the why, and the how of what it means to love, even our enemies. And so we begin with the question of who. You've heard it said, Jesus says, love your neighbours and hate your enemies. Now it's interesting to note here that the law that Jesus is referring to in Leviticus 19 has nothing to say about enemies here. It only says, love your neighbours. So what, why is Jesus adding this section at the end? Because he knows the Jews have done exactly what we do. We get a command from God. It sounds difficult. It requires sacrifice and hard work. And so we rationalize. Okay, God says, love my neighbour. So who is my neighbour and who is not my neighbour? Where can I draw the line? Because if God calls me to love these people, I can love them. But everyone else I don't have to love, right? But Jesus knows our heart, doesn't he? He knows it better than we do. And he is so quick to know that we absolve ourselves of responsibility. And when asked the very question of, okay, who is my neighbor, Jesus, in Luke's gospel, Jesus responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
And this parable tells us that our neighbour is anyone we are in a position to help. So let me ask you, who are you in a position to help right now? Friends and enemies alike. Because they are the people that Jesus is calling us to actively love tonight. And an understandable question after that is, okay, but why on earth would I do that? I tell you, Jesus continues, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now, part of the difficulty of the Sermon on the Mount is that we hear passages just like this, and we hear that in order to be a child of God, we must first do what Jesus is saying. But if you know anything about the New Testament, that is to contradict so many passages of the gospel. It's not about what we do, right? It's about faith. So how can Jesus say this? But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying you must first become the kind of person that feels positively towards their enemies and only then can you be a part of my family. Jesus is saying because you are a child of God, because you are in the family, go and love your enemies. You are in the family. It is done. It's been done for you. So go and love like your heavenly father does. Romans chapter 5 tells us this, while we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. My point is this, if we know that we have been enemies of God our Father, and that despite that, God chose not to retaliate, not to take vengeance or revenge, but to show a gracious, sacrificial, outrageous love towards us and sent his son to die for us, if we know that, then not only is it logical, but it's also somewhat less difficult to then do the same to ours, to love our enemies in the same way. But how on earth do we do that? How do we become like God? How do we have the mindset of Christ who looked at the people who hurt him most and said, I would rather die than hurt you? I would rather die than hurt you. Well, Matthew 5 gives us two ways of at least beginning to do that. And the first one is to pray for them. Not to pray about them, not to pray about the situation, for them. It is impossible, I think, to pray for someone and to continue hating them to the same degree in the same breath. You can't lift someone up to prayer to our Heavenly Father without feeling something soften towards them, without feeling God break down some of that hardness towards them in your heart. If we waited for positive feelings towards every person that we prayed for, I don't think many of us would have many people to pray for to begin with, myself included, but I also don't think that that is answering what Jesus says. It doesn't make us any different from anyone else. Anyone could ask a higher power to help their friends, but God loved his enemies, and so we pray for our enemies. And when we do that, not only will we be showing them God's love, but we're actually going to feel our feelings towards them transform. The need to pray for that person supersedes 
what we feel towards them. It supersedes how we feel about them. And theologian John Stott helps us see Jesus' incredible example of this. As he writes, Jesus seems to have prayed for his tormentors while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands. And indeed, the imperfect tense of the text suggests that he kept praying. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, what prose, what prejudice or sloth could possibly justify the silencing of ours? When you are insulted, when you are persecuted, when you're taken advantage of, when you're asked of for things time and time again, what is your instinct? Is it to inwardly groan and be frustrated, like me sometimes? To grumble? Is it to ask, God, give me patience? God, help me with this person? Our instinct should be to pray for them, to pray that God might meet them through you, to ask God to save them because God saved you when you did the same to him. The second way that we can start to love our enemies is to actively seek their good. This can feel impossible sometimes, I know, but to seek someone's good is to have the strength to look above and beyond what they have done to you and to look for what you can actually do for them. Romans 12 says this, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Just as God provides the sun and the rain for the righteous and the unrighteous, the evil and the good, all people, so our provision should be for all. Our friends, our enemies, those who we like, those who we hate. If we are a child of God, then we seek the good of those around us because God sought our good. Martin Luther King, in 1962, wrote these incredible words as he sat in jail and as he wrote his Loving Your Enemies sermon. I love this. When the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, that is the time which you must not do it. There will come a time when the person who hates you the most, the person who misused you the most, the person who has gossiped about you most, the person who has spread rumours about you most, there will come a time when you will have an opportunity to defeat that person. It might be in terms of a recommendation for a job. It might be in terms of helping that person to make some move in life. That is the time you must do it. That is the meaning of love. When we love our enemies, when we pray for them, and when we seek their good, we are reflecting the perfection of God. His perfect love that wasn't just for his people, just for those who loved him, for all. It's a creative, redemptive, truly transformative love. It's the same love that any Christian knows they've already been shown, that they are being transformed by. And when we love our enemies, we are acting as a child of that God who loves us and who sought our good while we were his enemies. 
But all of this comes with an incredible weight, doesn't it? And we should feel the weight of what Jesus says here. It's hard. All of us have ways that we don't do what Jesus is asking. I struggle to love my friends, let alone my enemies. I get angry with people. We hold grudges. I don't pray for people. I don't seek their good. We are so far away from what Jesus is calling us to be here, aren't we? But it's precisely in that moment that we are where Jesus wants us to be, realizing that we are spiritually bankrupt, poor in spirit, completely unable to do this on our own. But if Jesus is your Lord, if Jesus is your King, then you are no longer yours. You're His. You're dead to your old self and alive in Him, bought at a price by Him, raised to life in Him, and seated in the heavenly realms next to Him. It's with Jesus' love that we love people, not our own. When Jesus, as God in flesh, walked this earth, and he himself was faced with all four scenarios that he lays out before us, as people beg him for money, what does he do? He says, lend without expecting a thing in return. As people command his service, he has compassion on them, seeing that they are lost. As people persecute him in the law, he doesn't defend himself. And as people not only seek to do him injury, but murder him, he says, Father, forgive them. The Sermon on the Mount is not lived in taking just the right amount of revenge or just kind of managing not to hate your enemy. It's already been fulfilled in the only one who never took revenge, who chose not to. It's fulfilled in the one who perfectly loved his enemies. The one who dies to save the ones that do wrong. And the one who died to pay for the wrong that was done to me. I wonder what it would look like for 7pm at St Andrews to imitate that kind of love. My hope would be that it looks something along, along the lines of a man called Reverend Wade Watts. Reverend Watts was the state leader of the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People during the 1960s. He's worked with Martin Luther King all across the country. And he met this man, Johnny Lee Clary. And Johnny is a leader, or was a leader, in the Ku Klux Klan. And he and Reverend Wade Watts met in 1979. And this is Johnny Lee Clary describing their interactions afterwards. You know, I start calling your names and go, you, no, good, sorry, bleep, 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 you mother this, you this, you that. And he looked at me and goes, God bless you, Jen. <laughs> he says, I, I, you can't do enough to me to make me hate you. I'm going to love you and I'm going to pray for you whether you like it or not. And I didn't know how to deal with that. I had never had that happen to me before. A few years later, you burnt down his church, didn't you? Set fire to his church. See, he, what happened was we started off going by his house, calling him names. We got no response. Threw trash all over his lawn, got no response. Uh, we uh, put, showed up with our sheets and hoods and stood out there in his yard. Said, get on out of here, boy. We got something for you. And he comes outside. He goes, boys, Halloween's four more months away. I got more <laughs> trick-or-treat in here for you. Come back in October. And he goes back in the house. That's a bright thing. Yeah. And, and I mean, I didn't know how to deal with this. And so the clan goes, you got any more bright ideas? I said, I don't know. I said, I'll tell you what we'll do. So we burned a cross across the street from his house. He came outside and asked us if we needed hot dogs and marshmallows <laughs> for a barbecue, you know. So finally, I said, I'm tired of messing with him, and we set fire to his church. And they put the fire out before the church was destroyed. And I remember I called him up, this guy's my voice, and I said, hey, boy, you better be afraid. We're coming to get you, boy. 
You don't know who we are, but we know who you are. And he goes, hello, Johnny. <laughs> a man like you takes the time to call me. I'm so honored. <laughs> Let me do something here. He goes, dear Lord, please forgive Johnny for being so stupid. He doesn't mean to be so honored. He's a good boy trying to get out somewhere. In there. And I hung up the phone on him. I said, how dare him. And so the funniest thing that happened with him, though, is uh, I didn't know what to do. And I was at my rope saying, one day we, we was watching him, and he went into a restaurant. So we got a bunch of us together, and about 30 of us went in there surrounding him. He had this chicken there on the table at the restaurant. And I walked up and I said, hey, boy, this restaurant's for white people only. We don't want you here. I said, so I'm going to make you a promise. I said, I promise you we're going to do the same thing to you that you do to that chicken. So you think real hard before you touch that chicken. So he looked at me and looked at the clan. Then he picked up the chicken and he kissed it. And, and when he kissed the chicken, the whole restaurant acted just like y'all did. They all start laughing, you know, and everything. I don't know what your reaction would be, but if the KKK is standing outside your door looking like they're ready to murder you, I think words of hate would come out of my mouth. As they surround him in a restaurant, call him names based on the colour of his skin, I think I'd be just about ready to have fire of hate breathed out to him. And yet, Reverend Wade Watts, having had his life threatened, his church burned down, the KKK targeting him, says, you can't do enough to make me hate you. I'm going to love you and pray for you no matter what. How crazy powerful are those words? We so often only love the people who are an easy object to give love to. The people who've loved us first, or at the very least, love us back in some way. But if they're the people that we are showing love to, then we're not being Christ at all, are we? We're being ourselves. As we let Christ become more and ourselves become less and less, we are acting as the child of God that Christ made us to be. Not in order to get into the kingdom, but because we are already there. Knowing that, Knowing what Jesus has done and how secure we are in his love, are you willing to let him transform you? Are you willing to let Jesus transform you? Are you willing to let him do away with your pride, with your temper, with your sense of righteousness and your need to be validated by people? Are you willing to let him grow in you a love that seeks out the people that you would otherwise hate? Because if Jesus is your Lord, you are in God's family and you have Jesus as your brother and co-heir. And Jesus calls you tonight to act like it. Be like your father. Be like your brother. Let Jesus be your Lord by loving even those who hurt you even those who hate you, with the love of Jesus himself. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, your love is perfect and ours is so far from it. But would you grow in us your son's love so that we may seek out those who are on our hearts and minds tonight, who we find it hard to love, who we are frustrated towards. But Lord, would you help us learn what it means to love them? Amen.